Thanks for checking out this message from City on a Hill Church International. For ways to connect and get involved in the life of our church, please go to our website, coah.co.za. Right, well, it's good to be together again. Um, I want to welcome Francois. It's his first time with us. And first time at the church, I believe, today. Wonderful. Right, so we've come to Romans chapter 5. And we need to just stay on verse 1 for a little bit um, as I do a little bit of background and catching up. Come, you'll be the first to get the message. (laughs) So Romans chapter 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember that I said, when you see a therefore, you must ask what it's there for. So whenever Paul says therefore, he's, he's finished an argument. And what he's saying is, in the light of that argument, this is, this is going to happen. So let's do a quick recap. So since we've been justified by faith, summarizes the first four chapters of the book. And you remember that I said to you, um, this, is, this is very much like a court case that, that, um, that Paul builds. He, he builds up a case against man and uh, starts in chapter 1 about um, the, the, that all are, all are unrighteous and he works on that whole thing and he shows the whole legal, the legal angle and it's like building up this case as a lawyer to show that man is absolutely 100% guilty and deserving of death. And then having done that, he starts speaking to us about salvation, about righteousness, about justification, about grace, and about faith. Those are the, like the main themes. And so this is now a major turning point in, in chapter 5. Um, those who have put their trust in Christ are assured that, the faith, that their faith has been credited as righteousness. And, and we'll just refresh some of those terms we've used. So, credited, we said, is like, it's like bookkeeping. It literally means counted as righteous. So, um, you remember that Abraham um, was justified by faith. He, he was made righteous by faith because it was before the law. So, when, it's, when you are reckoned righteous, means you are righteous. God reckons you as being in a right standing with Him. You've had your sins cleansed. You are justified. And uh, you've been given new life. And it's just as if I'd never sinned. And, and that's our status. Uh, it's credit to us. Remember that we spoke about righteousness, which for me is a very helpful term. We spoke of righteousness as validation. You remember we spoke about how in so many areas of life we need validation. If you go from school to varsity or college or whatever, you've got to present papers that validates you to go and study. Right? So when they look at your papers and they put all your qualifications together, they say, you're in. You can, you can, you can study. So you, you've been validated. So the best way to understand righteousness, remember that um, we are the righteousness of Christ. 
Remember Paul, Paul said in Corinthians, he said, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I'm not righteous. I'm not in a right, perfect standing with God because of what I've done. It's because of what Jesus has done. And as we're going to see in this chapter, um, we, we're going to massage that and, and have a, a good look at it because he's going to get to the point where he, he explains and expounds exactly what's happened in Adam and what's happened in Christ. And then you begin to understand how radical this thing is, that we are counted as righteous. We, we have been validated by the Father. And you'll see in a minute, we, we have full access into the throne room of God. And it's got nothing to do with us. It's what has happened to us through Christ, through His wonderful uh, sacrifice for us. So, uh, validation, as we said, it opens doors. When you've got the right card um, and the right, the, the, the right credentials, doors open for you. And for us as Christians, when we've accepted Christ by faith, we are justified and um, the righteousness of God is conferred upon us. We are righteous. And we only stand in the courts of heaven totally unashamed because of His righteousness. As I say, it's like an, it's like an access card that you, you can now go into uh, the areas you need to go into. Our access card gets us into the very courts of heaven. And remember, obviously in the Old Testament, you could not go into the Holy of Holies. You, you, had, to, you had to be the high priest. Jeez, I'll just wait for this. We're not freezing yet. So remember that as a Jew, you could come into the, in, into the, the temple area, but you couldn't go any further. The priest would go into the holy place, and then only the high priest would go into the holy of holies. And as you know, the, when Jesus was crucified, the temple curtain was ripped in two. And that was a major picture of showing us that Christ has broken through on our behalf and we have full access into the Holy of Holies. And uh, in Romans 4, 19, he says, he, he did not weaken in faith. This is talking about Abraham and that whole journey of faith, how he became righteous and so on. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God. So here we get to this first verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, there's two key words already. Justification, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that it says, um, therefore, the ESV says, we have been justified. I think the NIV says, having been justified. Notice that it is, it's, it's a kind of a once-for-all term. You have been justified in Christ. The moment you put your faith in Christ, you are justified. 
you are accepted. Um, you've been given complete access um, with the Father. You've been reconciled to the Father. Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, he says, For he himself is our peace. Because this is the result of being justified. We have peace with God. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So here's the work of Christ. The whole work of Christ is to reconcile us to Father. That's the work of the cross. When Jesus paid that price, as we, as we put our faith in him, we are reconciled with Father, we're back home, and we've got peace with God. We're in a place of peace. Now, have a look at verse 2. Paul says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In Ephesians 2.18 it says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So here's what Paul is, is talking about. Um, and, and this would be very, very radical for the Jewish listener. Because they know what it is to be far off. They know what it is not to be able to go into the Holy of Holies. They, they would understand that. And Paul's saying now, through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. There's a lot in that verse. So we've got the access. Access to God. Access into the throne room. Access into His presence. And it's by faith. And it's into this grace. It's a wonderful picture when you realize we've been born into grace. The Jew was born into law. And they had all the rituals to perform and to please God through, through the rituals and the sacrifices, whatever. Now, Christ has taken all that upon himself. He's the perfect priest and he's the perfect sacrifice because his, his blood is sinless. And, and he's paid the price and he's, he's broken down that wall. And now we have free access um, in, in, into this grace. To me, it's a, I'll, I'll come to that in a minute, but... It's so wonderful that we've been born into grace. We, we've come into this wonderful sort of cloud of grace, if I can put it that way. But I'll, I'll go into that a little bit more in a minute. Notice he says, by faith into this grace in which we stand. So, so we, we've been repositioned. Paul says, once you were far off, now you've come near. You're home. You're with Father. You, you, you're with Jesus. You, you're in the Holy Spirit and... and, and um, you, you, you're standing. This is, this is where you're standing. Uh, you can stand in the presence of God because you've been given access. You've been validated. You are righteous. You know, for me, this is a very radical thing because in the Christian faith, we, we slip into performance mode. And that's legalism. We, 
We, God wants us to be in a place where we understand we are, we are living under grace. And as Paul will say later on, shall we sin that grace may abound? He says, no way, don't even, don't even think like that. But on the other hand, we must understand we are living in grace. And it's grace that frees. It's grace that liberates. You know, you think, if you say to someone, well, you've got grace. You know, God's just going to forgive you. He's just going to bless you. Oh, well, that's lack of it. I can just do what I, what I want. The great St. Augustine said, love God and do as you please. Which sounds a little bit crazy. But think about it. When you really love God, the automatic outcome is you live a life pleasing to Him. And that's the essence of grace. It's when you understand who you are in God, you've been validated. There's nothing that you and I can do to get any more validation. And I know we do it. I mean, I do it. Sometimes you almost say, well, shoot, Father, did you see that? It's like, and, and it's crazy because it's in our, it's in our system still. Uh, God wants us to be in that place where we know that we are we're His children, no matter what. There's no performance. We, we're not going to score points because there are no points to be scored. There are no points in this game. You've been invited in and you are there because God's made you uh, righteous. So, so this access, to me, it's like access to the palace. I mean, how do you get an audience with the king or a queen? That, that's, that's what he's talking about. The son of the king of the universe has brought you into the palace. He's brought you literally into father's house. I mean, that's a whole wonderful picture of the prodigal son. He says, no, I just want to be your servant. Father says, no ways. Puts the robe on him, puts the ring on him, puts new shoes on his feet. You're my son. We're having a party because now you're home. That's the essence of the gospel. And that's what Paul's talking about. Um, you know, my mom always used to say, Malcolm, please make yourself presentable. <laughs> the typical mother thing. Just make yourself presentable. Look nice. <laughs> and that's what Paul's teaching us. He says, through Jesus, we've been made presentable. We are fit to stand in the king's presence. He's made us fit to stand in the courts of heaven. Not in our, not in our righteousness, but in the righteousness that's been, been put on us and conferred upon us. We, in the natural, don't have the right clothing. But we've been clothed. That's why I love that term. And Isaiah uses it himself. We are clothed in righteousness. That's the picture of the prodigal son. That robe is the clothing in righteousness. We're covered in righteousness. And it's not ours. It's come through Christ. And so uh, Jesus has full access to the Father. And we, we have that through him. You remember Jesus said, I'm the door. If anyone comes to me, enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. To me, that's a wonderful picture of being completely released. We've, we've been given this pasture land of absolute freedom to feed and to grow and to be nourished. It's a similar kind of picture. Um, this, this access thing, I just want to take it a step further. As many of you know, I was a school dropout. So uh, then I get radically saved at 17. And within a month or two, I get a radical call into the ministry. And I know that it's, 
to be a minister. And um, I've failed standing mine twice. I've been expelled a couple of times. And I'm certainly not a candidate for any studies. <laughs> but God saves me. And uh, from the age of 17, I start preaching. And so here's this ducktail from Joburg South with no real education. But I, I go into the, the, into the Methodist ministry. I get accepted and I start doing internal exams. And then I'm off to university. I'm off to Rhodes University. And because I'd had a technical certificate and a few bits and pieces, they put that all together. And I got access into Rhodes. I cannot tell you that feeling. I remember it so vividly on a Sunday afternoon, arriving at Rhodes University in my little Volkswagen Beetle. It was drizzling, lovely rainy, wet day in Grahamstown. And I rode up that campus and I thought, God, this is unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Because I know where I've come from. I know that I've just got, I had four subjects in standard nine. I never told people I've got a standard eight. I said, I've got four subjects in standard nine. Actually, you don't have standard nine. You didn't get through. <laughs> so I actually had a standard eight. And now I get access into Rhodes University. And um, that's why this thing of access into the presence of God, into God's family, is so real for me. Because Jesus has given me this access. And so I went on and I passed the Bachelor of Theology, but they couldn't award me the Bachelor of Theology because I never had a matric exemption. They called it a diploma, but I don't care. I, I know I did the course, and I was chuffed. I'll never forget phoning my dad. Because when, when the door opened for me to come into the ministry, um, I was an appy printer at that point. My dad was horrified when I, I gave it up in my third year. I finished three years. He said, you need to get something behind you. I said, no, Dad, I'm called into ministry. The first person I phoned from Rhodes University, when I knew I passed, I just phoned him. I said, Dad, I've just passed Rhodes University. I've just passed my diploma in theology. But there's this picture of access into this grace, into this lavish love, into the presence of God. And that comes through faith. We have a new standing with God. We're standing in grace. We're living under grace. We've been set free from the bondage of law, the bondage of fear. As we're going to see later on in Romans, Romans 8, there's that wonderful scripture that says, we have not received the spirit to fall back into fear, but a spirit of sonship, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit bearing witness of our spirit that we are children of God. That's radical. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus has accomplished for us. So Paul says to the Ephesians, he says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You know, when we understand who we are in Christ, that's where the boldness comes from. Yes, the boldness comes from the empowering of the Spirit, but we are bold when we know that we are children of God. We're not looking behind us and in fear and trembling. We know who we are in God. Now, now Paul says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Okay, Once again, a, a whole lot in, in just one verse of Scripture. 
And he's talking about this thing of, of um, the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Let me talk about grace a bit. So grace, to me, this unmerited favor of God is like an ocean. It is always rolling in towards us. But, you know, you can say, hey, I went to, I went to the sea. <laughs> Great, what was it like? Well, I don't know, actually, because I just stood and I looked at it. It was wonderful. No, you, you, you'll only know what the sea is like when you stepped into those waves, when you felt, well, I always take a scoop of salt water and goggle and now I'm at the sea. <laughs> we, were, we were away with a bunch of part, uh, pastors recently at the hole in the wall and there was much cavorting in the waves and, and someone said, you know, this is this guy's first, first ever swim in the sea. And he's just so delighted. But so, so to me, the, the, the sea is like a picture of the, of, of the ocean of God's grace. But we have to access it by faith. We have to walk into the waves. And, and it's the sea that never stops coming in towards us. And it's a daily, it's a daily walk. We, we've entered this grace, but, but we live in this grace. And we, we, we access grace for every single thing we need to, to, to live for God in this world. Um, it's ever coming towards us, but unless we walk towards it, we'll not experience that grace. So what is the glory of God? You know, the, this is a very difficult thing. I've always battled to understand the glory of God. And it's a whole lot of things, actually. It's His holiness. Uh, it's His splendor. It's His magnificence. It's His light. You remember, uh, I might have it there, but you remember the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they, they were taken with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration. And what did they see? They saw they saw the glory of God. They saw Jesus shining in his future splendor. They got a, a preview of what Jesus would look like um, in, in the future as, as, the, as the risen Lord. And it was an awesome thing. They saw the glory of God as that took place. Um, his, it's his power. Um, the Mount of Transfiguration, obviously, in his resurrection. So... The, the glory is just the presence and the power and the majesty and the mercy and the grace. It's all part of the glory of God. It says in, in Hebrews 1, Jesus is the reflection of the glory of God. And we've been, we've been, given, we've been given access to this glory. You and I are having a foretaste of our future glory. And we get little tastes of it because glory, we, we can't live in a fullness of glory and be sustained, if I can put it that way. I know some, I, I, I've got a friend who's a pastor and tremendous emphasis on the glory cloud and living in the glory. But to me, the glory breaks in when God, when God moves. And you can't turn it on. You live by faith. You worship by faith. And every now and again you get a breakthrough of God's glory. You just know the presence of God is there. And, and you're getting a tiny taste of what the future will be like. Um, 
You know, Jesus said, Father, the hours come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Okay? What did Jesus mean? He's saying, Father, bring me through this ordeal, this death. Give me victory, give me honor, vindicate me. Accomplish your glorious purpose through me. Because by Jesus accomplishing the purpose, the Father is going to be glorified. And people are literally going to see the glory of God. That's why a hardened Roman soldier can look at Christ on the cross and say, surely this was the Son of God. Because he's touching something of the glory, even in this grotesque death. He suddenly just tapped in and seen something of this glory um, through Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. He's saying, Father, show your might through me. And so we see the results of that. Jesus conquers sin and death. He's raised from the dead. Now all the disciples see him in his glorified state. Peter, James and John had a picture of it. Now they see it in fullness as Jesus is now forever. And as I think we've said, Jesus will always be the man, Jesus. Nothing's changed except he now has that glorified body. So on the Friday he gets smashed to pieces. Sunday he's got a new body. Fully recognizable, but only the, the scars in the hands and the side. And of course he can walk through walls, he can eat have fish on, on the beach with his disciples. But now they're looking at what it means to be glorified. It means to be given a new body. It means to be taken into that wonderful eternal life. It's not just pie in the sky when you die. It's when we, we, we are resurrected, the earth is completely renewed, and the very earth will see the glory of God. The very earth will, will be exuding uh, praise to God because even the earth will be born again. And we'll come to that in Romans 8. Uh, Paul says this, this very earth is like in the pains of childbirth, waiting to be released. But we'll, we'll get there. No wounds, as I've said, and he's perfectly restored. And the disciples see that glory. And because they tasted of that glory, 2,000 years later, you can't extinguish the Christian faith. I mean, they went through horrific persecution, but Jesus had risen, they'd seen his glory, and nobody could change their minds. Not even death, not even torture. So now Paul says that the glory of God has, been, has broken into our lives. We have a taste of what we'll be like in eternity. His presence, his peace, his power has broken into our lives. And we're tasting of it now. We are tasting of the age to come. That's what the Bible says. Um, and that is what separates religion from true spirituality, from true Christian faith. We are meant to have a taste of that glory now. And like in the morning meeting this morning, there was like a taste. God broke in, felt his presence. No one had to like crank anything up. It was just like freewheeling on the bike. And God's presence was amongst us. God wants us to experience his glory in our meetings, in our lives, in the marketplace, where he breaks in and you say, sure, that's God. And so we get these tastes of his glory in this present age. Uh, we, are we, are, we are meant to experience his peace, his joy, his power now, his, and, and, and that communion with him. 
So, John, John 17, in this wonderful prayer that Jesus is praying before the cross, he says, The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So there's this amazing thing that I've mentioned several times. To me, that's the miracle of salvation, that when I'm saved, I am, and you'll look at it, we'll look at it next week, you are baptized into Christ. So I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me. And here's Jesus talking about this whole thing in John 17. That's the miracle of salvation. We're not just tagging along to this wonderful Lord. Yes, we are following Him, but we are in Him. We've been placed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me. And I've, I've got to share in the glory. So if you can imagine the perfect harmony, the perfect peace, the perfect joy in the Trinity, I've been, I've been drawn into that Trinity, and therefore I get tastes of glory. I get taste of this incredible life in God of peace and of joy. We, we don't live in it and walk in it every minute of the day, but that's what we've been drawn into. That, that's what it means to be part of God's family. And that's the radical nature of being, of being saved, of being made righteous, of being born of the Spirit. We are now in Christ, and Christ is in us. Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. And then he talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's this, this wonderful thing. We've been included into the Godhead. It's like, that is incredible stuff. So Tim Keller says, if, if you come to taste access with God and realize how intoxicating it is just to have a couple of drops of His presence on your tongue, you'll desire to drink from the fountain. I think that's a brilliant quote. You know, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Christianity, as I said this morning, is experiential. We're not talking about emotionalism, we're talking about experience. I experience the peace of God. I experience the love of God. I experience the forgiveness of God. I experience the assurance of the Holy Spirit. It's very experiential. And uh, I, I love, I love this, this quote. And that's, that's why for us, we've got to give people a taste of heaven. And uh, allow God to break in in our meetings, wherever we are, and give people a taste of this wonderful presence of God. And so in this, in this, in this thing about uh, we need to anticipate the glory of, uh, in our meetings, dealing with people, when we pray for people, um, and so on. Now we come to a very interesting part. Um, it's amazing that Paul gets into this so quickly. So... Let's have a quick look. In, in verse 2 he says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, it's, it changes tack completely. And he says the most interesting thing. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is the most amazing thing. Many years ago, this scripture just came alive for me. Because I was 
in a place of suffering. And I just saw how productive suffering is when it's handled by faith. It's amazing that Paul, he's talking about justification, he's talking about glory, he's talking about peace, and now he goes straight into suffering. And he, um, he says, and not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And that would be very pertinent for the early church because they were going through a lot of suffering and there was a lot more to come. Um, right through those early years, um, great suffering. And it's amazing that he couples this suffering with these other wonderful things of access by faith into this grace and whatever. And um, he, he goes straight into suffering. It's like there's the glory of God and then there's the real world. And these two are kind of, they intersect. And that's where we live, isn't it? We have tastes of the glory of God, but then we, we have tastes of the harshness of the world and of suffering and of pain and of disappointment. And so these two, these two sectors have, have met. And I think that's what, something of what Paul, Paul is saying. On the one hand, we've got all this glory, we've got this access into this grace. We are righteous. We've been validated. We are justified. We've got peace. But he said, you, you carry on living in the real world. And it's in a very victorious thing. Because he says, suffering produces endurance. If you have a faith of any worth, it's going to be tested. I mean, even before Jesus went to the cross, their faith was tested, the disciples. Remember Peter? Jesus said, Peter, before the, cross, uh, the, the, the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And, and, and Peter went through an incredible emotional suffering when, when he did betray the Lord. And so um, suffering produces endurance because, um, you know, the gospel that says come to Jesus and you're going to have comfort and blessing and no issues in life, it's, it's a false gospel. Jesus said in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So it's like Paul is intersecting this, this reality and he's showing that, that in the power of the Spirit, by faith, you can endure. Um, I think the word endure is um, a word I quite like. Um, it's called um, a hupomoine, which is a, a patient suffering, a patient enduring. Because the Christian life is an endurance race. It's not a, it's not a hundred meter dash. It's an endurance race. And that's what suffering is actually productive when we handle it by faith. So it produces endurance. And what does he say? He says, endurance produces character. And that's what God's after in us. We, we are growing, we are being formed into the person and the character of Christ. That's, that's the process of holiness. Holiness is becoming more like Jesus. And a lot of what we go through is just part of this um, enduring in suffering. And in that enduring by faith, that's where character is formed. I was listening to some guys in an interview the other day, and this generation now, um, they were saying a lot of the first-year students, like what they call the freshmen in America, that within the first three months, more than half of them are in therapy. Because 
this, this generation is so used to just pressing a button. You want to buy something? Press a button, someone will bring it to your door. You want some food? Press a button, someone will bring it to you. And, and, and it's like this cloistered environment. They haven't had to fight any wars. They haven't had to struggle uh, terribly much. They haven't had to fight for anything. Now they get to varsity and suddenly there's a whole pile of pressure and they're not equipped for it. And, and this is in America. So America, they're talking about 12 is the new 18. And there's no resilience. And the Bible is very clear that we've been entered into a very challenging race. We've got access into grace. We live by faith. Um, but there are sufferings and there's a need to endure. And that wonderful thing in, in Hebrews where we are told to run this race with your eyes fixed on Jesus from whom your faith depends from start to finish. And endurance produces character. And for me it happened very early because I got saved at 17 and two months later I was on the train the train track that goes past Poch, that's the train I was on to go to Simonstown. 17. And as far as I knew, there were only two of us who were born again in 180 guys. And they were the real roughies. It was the July intake. It was all the oaks who had bailed out of school and all, all the, the, the train wrecks. <laughs> and yeah, I tell you, that was challenging. I used to look at the Hottentots mountains. I used to stand on the parade ground right at the sea. I looked across at those mountains. I said, Lord, when am I ever going to get across there back home? It was like, it was such a challenge. But this friend of mine, um, John Dougal, I was so chuffed because he was born again and he had a black belt in karate. So, I mean, that is pretty handy. <laughs> and um, we used to take on the guys uh, for our faith, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Challenge them because they're taking the Lord's name in vain. We challenged them. Obviously, there were massive angels standing behind us because, I mean, if they did tackle us, we'd be in big trouble. But I developed character. When I came out of that for that year, I was so grateful to God because my calling was stronger. My faith was stronger. And, and this, this thing of endurance started to kick in. And, 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 and we, we have to endure. And in that endurance, the character of Christ is formed in us. And then he says, um, character produces hope. And that is something that in a challenging world, we all need. We need hope, not pie in the sky. We need hope. We need a concrete hope in, in, in Christ who's the rock. And that's the hope that's been developed um, in us. So Tim Kelly says we must understand that suffering is not punishment. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation. Um, the bottom line is when you know that you've been justified by faith, when you suffer, you don't feel like God is punishing you. Because it's very easy to feel that way. That's what Tim Keller says. Suffering isn't punishment. Jesus absorbed all our punishment. So that's, that's why it's so interesting that in chapter 5, Paul's talking about suffering. And up to now, he's been talking about justification, uh, being made righteous, being justified, and now he's talking about suffering. And he's talking about endurance. It's got nothing to do with punishment because that's been sorted uh, once and for all on the cross. Um, 1 Peter 4 says, 
Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I actually love that scripture. It doesn't mean that when you suffer, you have less sin. What I believe that means is that when you suffer, your motives are purified. So when you suffer, your faith is tested. That's why, that's why Peter and James talk about um, your, your faith will be tested. It will be purified like in the fire. The tested genuineness of your faith, Peter, Peter calls it. And what it does is it makes you certain of this hope in Christ. And it's got nothing to do with feeling. It's got to do with the reality that you are a child of God. You're justified. You, you are righteous. You're in a perfect standing with the Father. But in your suffering, something's happening. It's defining you. It's testing your faith. The tested genuineness of your faith. Because faith is something that grows, isn't it? Um, our faith should be getting stronger and stronger as we understand who we are and uh, what we're called for. What, what Christ has done for us, and that's this wonderful hope that, that's um, given to us. So suffering is, is so productive. The only, the only reason to rejoice in suffering is because it is so productive in the life of a believer. I've seen so many people who've suffered, and that's why I've, I've loved so much to read so many biographies in my, in my journey of faith. Because you, you come across people who've really suffered, in, in the body, in the flesh, or emotionally, or whatever. But it's developed their dependence on God. Their faith has grown. Their character is much more formed. Because they faced, they faced the, the challenges, the suffering by faith. And they've grown stronger. You know, I'll never forget my mom. Uh, we lived in this chaotic home where my father was an alcoholic. He was very abusive. He was very physical. He smashed the house to pieces. He would be standing on the veranda challenging the neighbors to come out and they, a bunch of so-and-sos and he wants to sort them out. And it was like crazy. It was a crazy, crazy situation. And you know, one day my mom was this wonderful, this wonderful lady and um, a, a wonderful believer, a wonderful born-again Christian. And one day a lady said to her, you know, Mrs. Black, you must have had a very sheltered life. You look so serene. And I thought, yo, if only you knew. If only you knew. We as kids, my mom would be chucked out the house. And we would push pillows and blankets to the window so she could sleep in the car. And the next morning she'd get up, we'd let her in. Five o'clock in the morning she comes and she makes my father his, his lunch to go to the mine. So I knew she lived in this crucible of incredible heat. But when you looked at her, she was serene because her faith had been refined in the fire. And, and, and I think that's what Paul's talking about. It's all very well saying, you've got faith, you're justified, accessing to this grace. Says, all of that is equipment to face the harshness of the world. Because you're going to stand and you're going to be lights in the world. You're going to be Christ messengers in the world. But it's going to come with, with suffering. But don't worry, because in the suffering... You're going, to get, um, you're going to get strengthened. Your faith is going to get strengthened. 
That's why Paul says that he gloried in his weakness. Remember, he said, you ask God to take this thorn away. And God says, no, I'm not. And Paul learned one of the greatest, greatest secrets. To tap into the grace of God. He said, my, he, he heard, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. That's why Paul said, I'll, I'll glory in my sufferings. Because I know that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm absolutely dependent on God, that's my strength. So he's, he's talking a lot uh, out, of, out of experience. Remember, he's writing this quite late. And um, this, this is his thought out. It's not just a letter to correct something in the church or encourage the church. This is his theological work. And he's been through all the stuff he's talking about. He has suffered in the flesh. But he knows that in that, this very thing he's teaching about grace, this access into this grace, is the very thing he learned in his suffering. To access the grace, to cope with the weakness, and learning this wonderful thing, that in his weakness, God was glorified. That's why he said in another letter, um, we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the power belongs to God and not to us. And that was experiential for Paul. It wasn't a theory. He discovered this. Uh, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And then it says, and hope does not put us to shame. It doesn't disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So in the natural, when you suffer, you'll get disappointed. But when, when you are living in this grace, and you're living by faith, and you are experiencing God's presence, that fills you with hope. That's when your faith becomes real. It produces praise and glory to God. And then what, what's the result? The Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts. The love of God has been, been poured into our hearts in this process. And our hope is enlarged. Now, we're coming to another major section. Uh, what is the time? We've been going for an hour. Just less than an hour. <laughs> no, we, what did we start at about? Quarter past five? Okay, 45 minutes. So what do you want to do? Should we press on a bit or? Okay. <laughs> okay, so let's have a look at Romans. Um, five then, further down. Because there's a lot of stuff here. Um, in verse 6, for instance, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were still in rebellion, uh, while we were still without faith, Christ died for us. Um, he died for the ungodly. And then he goes into this thing about one will scarcely die for a good person, etc. But God shows his love uh, for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in rebellion, He never waited for us to repent. While we were still in rebellion, He died, to, died for us and expressed His love and uh, put Himself on the cross for us. Verse 10 says the same, for, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Okay, so now we come to a very critical turning point as well. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, 
And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. By the way, can you just see these key words there? Justification, uh, uh, grace, etc. Righteousness, it's it's, it's all embedded in there. So he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now that's the reality of, of what it is to be born into the world. When we are born into the world, we have Adam's nature. Um, we're going to look, we, we've looked at this word impute, but we're going to look at it now because it's, it's very important. Sin is imputed to us, not imparted, imputed, which literally means placed on or within. Um, so just as we saw how the righteousness of God is imputed to us, conferred upon us by his action, so now by Adam's action of disobedience, that sinful nature has been imputed to us. It's been conferred upon us. It's not an easy concept to understand, but we're going to get, that, get into that. So as Adam sinned, so we all sinned. That's what Paul's saying. I, I, used, to th- I used to say that um, it's, like, it's like my genetic coding. It's like I've got Adam's genetics, but it's not as simple as that. But it's like that. You see what I'm saying? It's, the, it's that human nature that we saw in the early chapters is fractured. And that was because of Adam's disobedience and that, what we call the fall. Every man born is in Adam. And that's what Paul's teaching us now. As Adam sinned, so did we now. This is what John Piper says. He says, A deep, mysterious connection with Adam, whose sin became our sin, and whose judgment became ours. So I'm born in the likeness of Adam. I, I literally have Adam's nature. I'm talking now before salvation. I've got this fracture. I'm born cut off from God. And uh, that's what the whole, the whole cross is about. So Adam is the federal head of the human race. And this is what Tim Keller says. Federal head or federal headship, the, the word federal comes from the Latin 
fides or covenant. A federal head is a person who through a covenant relationship represents or stands in for someone else. So Adam is the federal head of the human race. He's the first of a kind. And the first of the kind disobeyed God and fell from His grace. And so being the federal head, that sin is passed on to all men. Because all have sinned. That's what Paul is saying. But it's, it's, it's wonderful to see this federal head because you're going to see something. So the disastrous result um, of Adam's transgression is by the transgression of one, uh, one man, Adam, the many died. Remember what Paul said earlier on? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life to those in Christ Jesus. So, uh, verse 15 says, By the transgression of the one man Adam, that will die. Verse 16, The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Verse 17, By the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. So, there's this, and you know, it's not difficult for us to believe. Because we know about generational problems, don't we? Generational curses that, that, that have like, you've inherited from that family line. So this, in, in, in a bigger sense, this federal head Adam, because he sinned, he's like the father of the human race, all sinned. Verse 18, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation for all men. Verse 19 says, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's the bad news. So it doesn't, it doesn't even mean we've got the propensity to sin. Okay, that's a big word. Now, Jill would really clap me if she heard me say that. So uh, it simply means, it means a lot more than I just have a tendency to sin. It means I am a sinner. It means I'm cut off from God. I've got Adam's nature. I do not have communion with God the Father. That's, that's what's been visited upon us. That's the thing that Jesus came to redeem. So, I've got an inclination to sin. Children from a very early age get there quite quickly, don't they? I've got a bias towards sin. You, you, you know the bowling ball? When, you know the bowls? So, so one, one of the sides of that ball has got a bias. It's got a, a little weight. So if, if you roll the ball, it's going to go to the bias, isn't it? That's our nature. Our nature is to tend towards sin. It's built into us. That's our human nature. It's fractured. Uh, so it's much deeper than that. I am a sinner. I sinned with Adam. I am as guilty as Adam. And I'm as cut off as he is. So the fall from grace is as great as Adam's fall. And the chasm between God and me is just as big. Any person right now without Christ is just like his Adam. That same gulf exists between them and God. His, his condemnation is my condemnation. That's why we're going to see he's going to get to another, another therefore later on. And he's going to say, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those in Christ. But we'll get there. And this is what he's building up to. Here's the great exchange. 
Paul says, yet death reigned, and he's talking of spiritual death. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift um, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So enter Jesus Christ. Enter the cross. And this is the absolute epicenter of our Christian faith. Because Jesus becomes the second Adam. That's what happened. He's born as a man, fully, fully man. Except he's being conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so he's in every way a man, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus, the man, identifies with us as fallen Adam to its fullest, fullest degree. Jesus, Jesus actually totally embraces our lostness, as we've probably touched on before, but it's worth repeating. When Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That to me is the deepest, deepest place where we see Jesus totally identified with man. He knew in that moment, and we don't know how long that moment was, but he knew experientially in that moment that he was cut off from God. He, he knew what it was to be a sinner. He wasn't a sinner. You with me? But he knew what it was to be a sinner because he was experiencing the effect of sin, which, which is being cut off from God. And experience that. It's very important to understand that because that makes our salvation so glorious. Because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He went into that deepest, darkest, lowest place, identifying with Adam's nature to the fullest. And that's what got broken on the cross. As he sacrificed his perfect blood. That's what broke this terrible line. That's why Paul could say, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. So Jesus is the second Adam. He comes to undo what the federal head did in disobedience. And you're going to see how Jesus becomes a new federal head, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, so what we'll see is that Adam imputes death to us, Christ imputes righteousness. Because that's what we've been studying up to now in the first few chapters. Is that the, the, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. It's been conferred upon us. It's been placed upon us like that robe of righteousness. It's, it's, been, it's been put upon us. Just like Adam has put the sin upon us, now Christ breaks that curse and he puts his righteousness upon us. We no longer are in Adam, we are in Christ. Um, so Adam and Christ is not a balancing act. So Paul says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Because Jesus is the God-man, he's the perfect man, his obedience is perfect, his righteousness is perfect. He is the only one who can undo the rebellion of Adam, but reconcile us to God and unite us with him. That's why Paul says, if any man is in Christ, is a new creation. Adam brought death and condemnation. Christ brought abundance of grace. And that's why it says in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For 
if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So it's not a balancing act. Um, That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, we, we are members of the household of God. Not so Adam. He was, perfect, he was perfect man. He was innocent. He had not sinned, but he was not a member of the household of God at that point. Because the story wasn't completed. <laughs> yeah. So why is Jesus the much more? Because he is eternal life. He has power over death. He is the righteousness of God. Jesus is indestructible as the, as the resurrection is proved. This glorious Christ imputes his righteousness to us. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's, that makes that just so wonderfully real. The old has passed away and the new has come. This is how Paul states it in, in Ephesians 2. He says, Yep. Why would you say Adam is not a member of the household of God? At that point. Not like we are. Why? Because certainly in his test he failed. And now Christ has completely undone that. And we've been perfectly redeemed. Now, he was created in the image of God. He was in, in perfect harmony with God. But the process wasn't quite finished, was it? Because he hadn't been tested yet. And when he was tested, he failed. And so he forfeited any possibility of being in the household of God. Does that make sense? And Yes, and he was banished, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that was the process, yes. Is Adam sacrificial? Yes. No. God he created him in his image. Yeah. Knowing that he would fail. Right. Knowing that he would fail. Mm. Because he would have to then send his son to redeem Adam. Yeah. That's why there's that curious verse in so the... Now, I wouldn't see him as sacrificial. Um, you know, when I was teaching some... Is it not the same as, as what Abraham had to do with his son? But, yeah, that, that was a test of his faith. Now, remember that he had been brought into this, this covenant relationship with God, and that was the testing of his faith. Yeah. Right. He did not fail. No, he didn't. He did not fail. Yeah. Adam failed because at that point, God, God allowed them to be tested, to test, to test the heart. I mean, I had youngsters when I was teaching Bible at, at, at high school, they were saying, but now, so why did God even uh, sort of make us, knowing that we're going to blow it anyway? And uh, those are quite deep questions. But the point is, if their hearts were not tested, what, what were they offering? 
We hope you enjoyed this message from City on a Hill Church International. For more content and ways to connect, visit www.coah.co.za. Thanks for listening.